Hello, and welcome to the DOS Champions podcast, our second week after hiatus. It's really good to be back. Uh, Alex, how's it going? I'm doing well. I'm pretty much exhausted. I, I had the luxury of traveling for work on Sunday and getting delayed about 10 hours in Dallas airports and um, arrived back in Chicago at about one o'clock last night. And um, yeah, I'm just like functioning off of little to no sleep as per usual, but I am happy to be here and a wedding this weekend. And then I get to go hang with you at a Madison forward game. Yeah, we'll uh, hype that a little bit more later on, but I am, you know, understating it when I say I'm excited about it. Uh, This week, we're going to go through a few things. Going to start it off with a little bit of uh, the Bavarians. Of course, we got to talk about the Orange County Soccer Club situation, uh, do our compulsory EPL breakdown, some U.S. men's national team flavor, and then, uh, like I said, end it with the Forward Madison uh, game. So, Alex, I was able to go to Milwaukee on uh, Saturday and Sunday and watch the Bavarians win the National Amateur Cup. This is their sixth National Amateur Cup, uh, ninth star over the crest overall. So, uh, you know, new logo. My scarf is officially out of date now, which is a good thing. Um, it was a blast. Uh, I think you were probably following a little bit on Twitter, but, uh, you know, before I gush too much here, what was your lens into this? Um, I talked to you after the game and, um, it was cool to see our boy Mark Haas playing in the game and his story. And uh, it's like indicative of how the Bavarians function and how effective they are today in the sense that young players come into the program and in a lot of ways, the training that they receive allows them to go to college and they stay connected to the program and oftentimes play on what's the equivalent of a reserve squad. And, you know, when you're not a professional soccer player, I mean, this is like a semi-pro league as far as I'm concerned, but you know, when you're not getting paid millions of dollars, you have to have another job. And when you're not training and taking ice baths after every game you play, there's a high risk of injury. And so having a reserve squad and having a foundation really suits a team like the Bavarians. Well, and a guy that we know Mark Oss got to play in this game. Yeah. I've, uh, known his family for many years. I played with his older brother. He was actually on the same team as my sister when they were like U 12s before she, uh, switched over to playing only with, with girls at U 13. Um, it was really neat, the environment in the game and kind of to speak what you're, um, taught, speak to what you're talking about. And also, um, Peter Wilt was at the game and I saw him tweeting out afterward that, uh, you know, about the culture, um, when he had been talking to a bunch of people there at the Bavarian, there was a, after I talked to Mark, a little kid came up to him and asked him for a signature. And we're just talking about like a guy that just got on the field for, I don't know, he must've gotten half an hour in both of the games about or whatever. But, um, you know, the, the kids there, they're all about the, the upper team. They have a great youth program. Um, the, the vibes around the club are great, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really special environment. And I, I wish that there was more of it in us soccer in general, uh, but the results went that they played the LA strikers in the semi on Saturday, ended up winning, um, two zero. I think they, they controlled the game pretty well in that. And then they won the, uh, final one zero against Northern Virginia. So like 
solid defense. Uh, they were really disciplined in their shape most of the time. The midfielders had some incredible, uh, like, tackles and and ball control. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, so glad that that other star, you know, made it onto the crest. And then this result gets them into the first round of the Open Cup this spring. And fingers crossed, though it'll hurt for uh, forward Madison. I, I hope they get to play one another. Um, that would be that would be incredible. Who do you think would win that game? I mean, if you're going into it right now, who do you project to win between forward Madison and Bavarians? Well, I mean, Ford Madison beat them 2-0 the last time this happened, back in, like, 2019. So I, I guess I would just anticipate a similar result. Um, but I, I really don't know. Uh, you know, I went with uh, Justin, a buddy I played with him, uh, or he was on my brother's team at Bavarian, but we, we played growing up and stuff, and Alex knows him well. And he kept being like, I'm pretty sure that they are better coached than the forward Madison team. Um, he's like, I really want to see them play one another. So it, it's interesting. You know, I don't want to throw shade at like forward Madison or something, but uh, it's more a compliment to the Bavarians about you know what their system is. They're, the guy that's coaching the team, Tom Zeiss has been the coach for 20 plus years or something of that. And, and he's helped really like revitalize and build the youth program and coached many of those guys at the youth level. Um, he was actually the coach of that, team that Mark Haas was on is like a U11, U12, and my sister was on. So, uh, you know, it, it's a different kind of setup. Um, and, and there's a ton of turnover at, at those like third division teams, a la for Madison. So I don't know, too close to call. Um, I know who I'll be rooting for if they play though. <laughs> Sorry for Madison. Good man. Good man. Uh, but yeah, I guess Al, we're going to get into the uh, the divisive stuff now. We love our divisive topics, and uh, uh, we got a doozy coming down the pipeline here. Yeah, I mean, the Orange County Soccer Club situation is is pretty... Um, I, it's something I think many fans should be paying attention to right now because it represents so many issues in uh, soccer in the United States. Um, so maybe just to kick this thing off, like... Orange County is like a very attractive spot for soccer in the United States. By some investment groups, it's considered the fourth largest addressable market for soccer in the U.S. So lots of reasons to want a club. There are lots of reasons why soccer could be successful there. And, um, you know, they, they had a prospect. I think his name's Kobe Henry come out of um, Orange County recently. And so they're, like they're clearly producing talent. Right. And it's clearly an attractive spot to be. Um, but Ryan, they don't own their facility, do they? No. And that's what this whole situation is about is the, uh, city of Irvine owns the stadium and a proposal has come forward where, uh, LA galaxy want to be allowed to utilize it for their second team. Uh, and I guess it would also have a slight change in its tangential utilization and what, uh, benefits are going to the community in, in general, um, so that was slotted to be discussed yesterday, I believe at the, the town hall meeting. Um, the only, you know, lens I have is just like reading articles online, interacting with people on Twitter or whatever into exactly what's going on on the ground there. But the topic was pulled from the agenda a couple uh, of days ago. It didn't stop a lot of the supporters from showing up at the uh the meeting yesterday anyways and i guess a lot of them were you know 
giving impassioned speeches about uh, exactly why they wouldn't want Orange County Soccer Club to, you know, not be able to use that facility any longer. Uh, but, you know, it's it's safe to say that this type of thing, it, it just isn't over yet. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty around it. And, you know, nothing stifles uh, growth and, and makes things more difficult to plan for long term than uncertainty. Uh, and I think that transitions pretty well into, um, you know, what you really are, are looking at in this topic, Al. Yeah. Um, what really I think is like frustrating about this topic and um, as much as I would love to be like, hey, USL like is getting the short end of the stick in this particular case. I, I actually don't think USL is getting the short end of the stick because USL's had this happen. They've done this to other clubs. Um but I, I think there's like a general lack of um, responsibility to facilitate the soccer landscape in the United States by USSF. And, you know, this this shouldn't be happening. Like if you're trying to grow the sport and like USSF is like really concerned with like the, the families, the people who are built, the, the, the builders, um, the players, you know, development, they're not going to let a successful club that's operating in Orange County just like lose their stadium and um so i think that's a, it's a really big misstep by ussf um they have been absent for the most part in releasing a statement on what's going on as they have been with like many topics before in the past i mean th this is this is just like standard ussf in the sense that something like something that doesn't feel right is happening and they're not there to issue a clarifying statement or really give like a position other than a like you know, we have to say it, so we're going to say the most nebulous thing possible. But um, very specifically, like the real victims here are the fans and the clubs and the builder of the club. And, um, you know, just to like go further down the rabbit hole, like the reason why I don't say poor USL is because this has happened before to other clubs that USL was like, you know, basically like the MLS team in this situation. It happened in Chattanooga. Um, there was a team, um, Chattanooga FC, they really, the MLS wanted them to join the MLS and there were discussions between the two organizations, um, MLS and Chattanooga FC and Chattanooga didn't want to join MLS because they didn't believe in a model that was without pro rel. And so what happened was, is an investment group came in out of, um, Arizona and took some of Chattanooga's, uh, front office and, you know, deployed Chattanooga Red Wolves and neither team is being particularly successful in that demographic. What ended up happening was, is the market was split. And so neither team could recognize the revenues that they needed to recognize in order to be successful. Um, so I don't think that this is like particularly a USL is the innocent victim here and MLS is the bad guy. I think, again, this is just about the space not being properly um, regulated. Yeah, I think the Chattanooga thing is a really interesting example of uh, kind of what's going on here where, um, you know, a couple different entities are fighting over a similar piece of the pie and back to the, the uncertainty and, um, you know, things not having longevity, how many clubs have, have died and... Um, you know, I don't know how many that have died didn't need it's to like die or whatever. Actually, it's actually hundreds. I I, I looked at it's almost a, it's over a hundred. I saw a link today 
of all the clubs and it included like the likes of the Rockford Raptors and mm-hmm. the Seattle Sounders even had teams in USL that um that went under before yeah. they released their major league team. I mean the Milwaukee Rampage are gone and I went to a championship championship winning game of theirs when I was a kid. Um but it's a it, I think it's just generally a sign of that the USSF needs to to do something in order to make it so that the soccer landscape is is structured in a way that allows for there to be more dynamic movement. You know, Alex and I are both big pro rel people, and I think allowing these smaller clubs to ascend and then uh, assert their you know assert themselves, become more economically viable, grow and grow. Um, and have access to more competition and and therefore like larger viewership and stuff. It does help um, combat this type of thing from happening because then because it's the fourth largest market, this Orange County. So of course you know uh, an MLS team is going to be looking at it, going, "Hmm, how do we get a piece of that pie? How do we use our resources to get a bigger piece of that pie?" Uh, and yeah, it's, you know, it, it's easy to just be like, well, they all are fighting in this game against one another and, you know, to the winner goes the spoils. Um, but if truly the objective is to grow the game and make sure that, you know, kids have a place to play, they have people to watch, there needs to be a little bit more done to help make sure that clubs who do well are able to keep uh, growing. And I ones totally, that, totally you know don't do that well end up uh not being as viable and it's for the right reasons you know um it's it's a little pie in the sky stuff but it's it's really not man i mean i think like that's how like economics in the united states is supposed to work and like um there are like proper regulatory bodies that that manage and govern certain markets and it just seems to be absent here i mean it seems to be absent in in the sports market in the united states in general like it's it's a i think it's like a kind of a strange uh, so for a, for a frame of reference, I, I work for one of the big four consultancies and they don't do business with the majority of sports franchises. Like, um, they staff up thousands, you know, if not tens of thousands and uh, thousands of employees for sub segments of certain industries. And they have like employees dedicated to the sports industry that you could count on one hand. And it's because their, their, their business models are just so, they're so sporadic and so questionable that it's really hard for them to like consistently wrap their arms around, okay, well, what are these guys trying to do? And especially as an audited tax firm, how are they doing it in a way that's actually compliant with like a lot of the standards that are out there? So and I think most people know this, like the sports industry is just kind of like a weird industry in general. But um, I want to dive into like what happened to the, what happens to like the builders and what the economic impact is in this situation. And there's this there's this video of this little girl and, you know, she's like up there in front of the microphone talking about Orange County and she's nervous and you can hear her voice trembling. And it's like the most endearing shit. And she's like, you know, if it weren't for these guys, I would have never played soccer. And she's not representative of all people, but th- there's an element of that stuff that's true. And I know for me growing up, like it wasn't, it wasn't a professional soccer club that got me into playing soccer. It was like the person who was dedicating their time in the community that taught me how to play the game and got me interested in it. And if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have played and blah, blah, and the rest is history. But you have these builders who are going out 
and they're ironing out what the business plan is for Orange County. And this isn't like a one-year, two-year thing, and it's not like they sit down and they're like, oh, well, we could have a stadium here, and we'll charge this much for hot dogs and this much for scarves, and like it will all work out. What happens is, is they like they go out and they probably spend thousands of dollars out of their own pocket, and you know, thousands of hours of their time every year trying to make this work, and it's like not sustainable, not sustainable, and then like it's kind of sustainable, and then like some people help them out, and over the course of like 10, 11 years, however long it happens, I don't know how long Orange County's been along for, been around for, but this, you know, I've observed this happen with other teams that especially the ones that have helped with their business models, it's not easy. Like it takes time to build the logistics and the supply chain and like a sustainable business model. And what really sucks about this situation is like, it's not like LA is coming to town. The galaxy are coming to town. They're like, okay, you do your thing. Thanks for building the addressable market for us, but we're going to build a stadium over here and we're going to try to poach your talent. What they're doing is they're trying to take their stadium. Like they're, they're disrupting their supply chain and like crippling it. And the effect of that is enormous. Like if your margins are super tight and you have to fill like a 10,000 person stadium, I'm not saying that's how large your stadium is, but just use it as a frame of reference. You have to fill a 10,000 person stadium and 25% of those people are going to buy food and beverage and 10% are going to buy a scarf. You have your business model dialed down and knowing where you're going to play has a huge impact on whether or not you can be successful. So to pull the carpet out of uh, underneath these guys is it's just, it's sickening. It sucks. And like the people that really get hurt, you know, it's, it's the kid, it's the fans and the, and the uh, players who are playing, but it's the people who dedicated like 11, 12 years, however long it took them to build this thing. Yeah. And uh, the part that like really gets me to piggyback off what you're saying there is that, a lot of this uh, move by LA Galaxy, they're framing it as them taking over the stadium is beneficial for the Irvine community in general. And it's very clearly a cynical financial play, uh, if for anybody that looks at it. Um, but it's really insidious to describe it as like a beneficial to the community thing, especially considering all the stuff that you just said. Um that that part really and that type of behavior in general uh in, in many different areas it really really bothers me whenever somebody's you know uh feigning altruism um i i'm not on board <laughs> no i'm not a big fan of that either and you know it's it's weird for an mls club and i don't think anybody in the soccer industry really like uh, the Bavarians might be an exception because they have an incredible business model with like multiple revenue streams and they've been doing it for damn near a hundred years. But for a team to come into town and say, we're going to offer more to the taxpayers and it's going to be a better economic boon to the city. There's a team out of Arizona, Phoenix rising, and they've put a proposal together. They put it in effect last year to build a $350 million MLS stadium. And I think they're about $20 million, $30 million into the investment. They moved from Casino, Arizona Field to, uh, to uh, Gila River. Um, and they're being evicted after their first year because they're unable to cover the cost of what it's going to take to build this stadium. And people miss on business plans. Like, you know, some hit, some miss. And like, that's just part of like how economics works. And that's that's fine. Like, you have to... You have to have your losers so you can have your winners. But again, this speaks to USSF's inability to wrangle in, okay, is this a safe investment? Do we have standards for what you're allowed to invest? Do we have standards for where you get your money from and what returns you can promise investors? And I just think it's like a very cavalier and like you said, insidious thing to 
to suggest it's doing that, which it's not because the economic impact has already been felt by Orange, been built by Orange County, but that they can actually live up to the expectation that they're setting. Yeah, um, seems like, you know, ML or USSF, God, so sorry for confl- conflating the two, everyone. Uh, they, <laughs> they, um, they really like allow things, especially in the lower levels, to be run like it's the Wild West. And, you know, um, a cynical person, so myself, would look at that and go, hmm, if it's run like the Wild West, that probably gives the people at the top a lot easier time letting the or uh, taking over different stuff, being able to pick their spots and uh, cripple other institutions economically. Um, it's almost like it's on purpose from the USSF. This, uh, you know, Chris Castle would say that. Well, Chris Castle would say the system is designed to work. What does he say? It's, it's, it works exactly as it's designed to work. And, uh, that statement sticks with me and I believe, I believe it to be true. Um, we hope for the best. Uh, I think I speak for you and I, like we hope for the best for Orange County SC. We appreciate everything that they've that they've done in their demographic for the game. And um, I, dude, I would, I venture to guess that the vast majority of the fan base is pulling for these guys. And I really hope, I really hope this thing, uh, I hope they keep their stadium. Right. And I, frankly, I hope LA galaxy comes to town and orange County whips their ass, but (laughs) I, um, yeah, I hope they keep their stadium as well. You know, they're, they're out there. A lot of people are are fighting a really tough battle right now. Uh, I hope they're, successful in this and then also that this in general a lot of people notice what's going on and and kind of it gives them a window into you know what u.s soccer uh what it's like out there and what it you know maybe we could have something better going on in terms of how things are structured uh is ussf the answer maybe not some people really don't think they are but that's a whole different topic Um, yeah, we're going to have to get Ted on for that one. Yeah. Um, so should we jump over across the pond? Yeah. Uh, I'm excited for this. Uh, well, you know, disappointed once we get into the topics a little bit, but yeah, let's do some EPL. Uh, we're going to do some just not totally brief, but, uh, we'll hit the hit what we consider the most important things. Um, yeah. First topic, we're going to go with Liverpool, uh, they had a 2-2 draw away versus Fulham. And I saw a stat, Al, that was like the most duels won, like the top five players that won the duels in that game. Mitrovic just dominated. The guy won like 11 of 16 aerial duels or something, but oh, he had wow. 18 total duels won. The top of all of the top uh, guys that in this list, I think... Top four were uh, all Fulham players, and then the number five was Robertson. And I really think that is kind of the story of the game right there. Uh, Fulham was all over the second balls. They pressed very relentlessly. I think the only team that had more pressing actions than them over the weekend was actually Leeds, which not surprising. But uh, yeah, they were brave in their pressing. They they won all of those like individual battles for the most part. They they outworked Liverpool is what I'm getting at here. And yep, that's yep. that's a tall order. It says a lot about their mentality. Uh and it says a lot about Liverpool too cuz Liverpool's not a team that gets outworked often and that's not a good sign for them in the opening 
opening game. Uh, yeah, what what did you think about that? Yeah, I was like, um, I I was thinking the whole time. I'm like, all right, well, like, when is Liverpool going to just like start dominating them? And um, I I just like in general, like I thought Fulham like didn't just you know, quiver in their defensive third and uh, like try not to get their ass kicked. Like they, they fought and they brought it and they, um, they came, they came in with a game plan and like, they felt like their game plan was good enough to execute and actually pull off a result. And I was thinking for a good part of this game, Oh my gosh, like Fulham's going to come away with three points in this thing. And uh, dude, like you don't just do that versus Liverpool. It's not like you just get like, you know, over the course of 90 minutes, with 22 guys running around the field that you just get lucky. Like it doesn't happen when like, especially when you're talking about a team that's projected to be at the top and projected to be at the bottom. So I don't know in general, like I thought Fulham fought. Um, I, I really like hope it's not the case. Cause I, I like, you know, as an Everton fan, I actually do like Liverpool. I hope Liverpool aren't um, the, like there aren't deficiencies in the team that are going to prevent them from competing the way that they want. Although you and I have talked about a rebuild, but I do think that Fulham is here to play this year. Like, I think Fulham is going to be a lot better than we expect, like potentially like a Brentford. So um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. That's what I thought of the game. I thought Fulham came to play. Yeah, no, they absolutely did. Uh, they'll have a l- huge amount of confidence coming out of that. Uh, and then for Liverpool, their next game is on Monday at home versus Crystal Palace. We'll see how that one goes. Uh, being at home is a big thing, but Crystal Palace is no slouch um, despite their 2-0 loss to Arsenal. I, I do not, after that result against Fulham, think of this game in any like, oh yeah, whatever type of terms. It is, you know, Liverpool needs to have a way better mentality in this game. Otherwise, they could drop points again. Yeah. So, on to Everton now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is my take, and I want I want you to, talk uh talk about Everton with me because like you you've got a really good perspective on this. So I think like the first thing is like you could look at this game and be like all right, well they lost 1-0 to Chelsea and that's not that bad because like Chelsea's good. But like we don't like we don't really know the context of everything. Like was like Everton actually like pretty good defensively and like yeah, they've got some offensive injuries and like they pulled down on a whole bunch of signings this week. So like maybe they're going to be like pretty good in the next game and it's not as bad. Or is it that like Chelsea can't really execute and Chelsea's a lot worse than we think? Watching this game, like Chelsea, in my opinion, Chelsea like dominated the game. I was just like, okay, like when are they going to break us down and when are they going to score a million goals? Like we never, I to me, like I never felt like we were very threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, some really bad shit happened to Everton in the game. So like obviously we lost Dominic Calvert-Lewin for a long period of time before the game even began. It happened in training the previous week. Ben Godfrey had what I think is a pretty serious ankle injury. And when I say serious, like, yeah, like eight to nine months, like worse than Andre Gomez style ankle injury. I mean, they had to give him oxygen and he had to go, like get rushed to a hospital. Um, I mean, when you have a bad, like a fracture or something like that, that's always going to happen. But it seemed a lot worse than like, you know, dude broke his ankle and like he's going to recover in a period of time. Like it almost seemed like um, there was something a little bit more threatening about the injury. And of course, mm-hmm. Yeri Mina, who's like perpetually injured, picks up like a soft tissue injury and he's like out for an indefinite period of time. And if they say it's going to be two weeks that he's out for, it's really going to be four weeks and he's going to get injured immediately when he comes back. So like, it's really tough to contextualize what happened in this game. And, you know, the injuries are obviously not a good thing, but then they went on a flurry of signings. Um, they, they signed 
two players that I can think of off the top of my head this week. One of them a defender, one of them a midfielder. Um, so like what I they need. I mean, they need everything, yeah. I guess, but like they really needed those guys. Yeah. And like um, what really like threw me off this week, like I told you, I was like I was at conferences for work this week and like I hadn't really been tuning into anything. And you're like, yeah, man, I expect them to play like a three back system. And like I didn't know that they had um, lo- they had gotten Connor Cody on loan. It's Connor Cody, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's pretty good. Like Wolves were pretty good defensively last year. So like, fuck, yeah. All right. We got him. But like when you said like, hey, I think Everton are going to play a three back system. I was like, do we even have enough defenders to do that right now? Like, OK, so what? We're going to roll out three people with like one substitute. And then like what happens when somebody else gets injured or, you know, picks up a series of yellow cards? Like what then? Um, and, you know, then I saw the signings and I don't think it's as big of a deal. But like there are serious personnel in- issues with. And they Everton. have that all over the park, though, you know, totally. Like- that as you were talking about them not being threatening up top, it's like no surprise they had um that what's your wonder Anthony kid's name? Gordon. They uh, just like on an island alone, you know, and and it, you don't want to play Anthony Gordon as your center forward. No, but like what else in that they're gonna fucking do? You know, they're, they it's like yeah, it's not a great idea. You got any better ideas? Oh yeah, I didn't think so. You know, like it's a really tough situation. Um, in general about the result. They what lost on a penalty one zero to Chelsea. So you gotta be worse. You, you gotta think that defensively they're probably gonna be pretty stout a lot of the time. I do think this is partially that Chelsea is a little bit lackluster attacking wise. I mean, they have been under Tuchel, right? Yeah. So it's it's gotta be some of that. Um it, I feel like in order to properly appreciate what this result means, more context is needed. Yep. Uh, I agree. And I think the one thing we can definitely say about Everton though, is it's going to be tough to score goals. I don't know where the offensive production is going to come from. Anthony Gordon's awesome, but he's really young, man. Like, like, as as much as I want to say he's awesome and you do this with Liverpool a lot, you you know, you kind of like, you look at the devil in the details and like he was really good when the team needed him, but like young players are really streaky and he's mm-hmm. not a center forward. Like you throw him on the wing, you let him run at some people. And to your point about offensive production, there were times where like Damari Gray was running up the wing and had like Anthony Gordon. And it's like, Oh dude, just hit that pass. The pass is right there. Hit the pass and he's going to be through. And Damari Gray would play like a horrible pass. And like what's, what's, what can't happen is transition and opportunities are going to be few and far between. So like this team is like very rarely going to have good opportunities to generate and and score goals. And if they have like sloppy passing in the final third for the few opportunities they get up there, they're just not going to score. And that's one of the things that actually stood out to me is really sloppy passing in the final third. Yeah. And like you said, it's exacerbated when you have fewer opportunities, uh, it's hard to see. I mean, how are you feeling against, or how are you feeling about the game against Villa on I, Saturday? Because okay. Villa got a poor result, right? Yeah, I, I thought they did. Um, so. Yeah, I, I feel good about it. Like, um, I, I kind of hoped. I told you this over the phone. Like, I wanted Week One to be away because I feel like it's like a little bit of a pressure cooker. Like, you know, you play at home against Chelsea, and you're like probably not going to win. And so, in some ways, like a one nil loss is okay. But like you don't want to lose at home in your first game. Like if you could lose on the road, it might be a little easier because the fans will bring the energy at home when you get there. And I think this game against Villa, it's like a really good opportunity where it's like the team needs the points. They're they're going to need the points in any game they can get them from. 
but they're not really expected to get the points. Like, you know, Villa is like a better team than them for all practical purposes, and they're playing on the road. So it's like it takes the pressure out of the situation a little bit, and I think it might be a really good time for them to introduce new personnel and kind of like try to get the team to gel. Um, so I actually think the game against Villa is a really great opportunity, and I, I feel good about it. All right, cool. Uh, now that you and I get to have our, uh, you know, depressing venting sessions, essentially, yeah. I guess we, I guess we go on to something a bit happier. So Leeds United is, you know, as all true Americans and, uh, Al and I being Wisconsinites as well, uh, Leeds United is something that we are about. Um, you know, Jesse Marsh, I, everybody needs to mail that man a Kringle. I'm, you know, not gonna not gonna let off on this. They get that awesome two one home win versus Wolves. Uh, Brendan Aronson had a pretty good game. I think he got voted man of the match. I know the uh, Leeds fans are all about him, and uh, I think Tyler Adams covered the second most ground of any player in the Premier League. That is a stat some people say well is overrated, but given what it is in the Leeds system, uh, Tyler Adams is is looking like he belongs there. Uh, so. I mean, this is all up and up for all the Americans, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, Al, what were your big takeaways from the game? Yeah, um, I, my big takeaway was like, first and foremost, like three points to Leeds against Wolves to start the season is a great start. Like, well, I, Wolves had like weird production last year, as we both know, like. They were really good defensively. They didn't they didn't do much on offense. And Jose Sa's production was mostly unsustainable. But, you know, at the end of the day, they were I think they were 10th in the league and they were one of the stronger defensive teams. So for Leeds to to score two goals and pull away three points, it's like I'm feeling pretty good about them not getting re- relegated. So great. That's a good start. Um, Brendan Aronson did what he always does, yeah. which is be in the right place at the right time with a high work rate. Mm-hmm. And um, you can't take that shit away from him. Like a lot of people were like, oh, he had a bad game. Look at his sofa score rating. Oh, that was an own goal. And it's like, all right, dude, get real. Like Brendan Aronson played a great game. He was responsible for, you could argue that he was responsible for each goal because in the first one, he stole it out of his opponent's own box. He, yeah, and- he had, uh, he's a significant performer. Like his actions, it's not like directly led to, but a lot of the good things Wolves, or sorry, that Leeds did, he's right in the center of. Yeah. So you, you can't, I mean, you can you can argue about like, oh, his quality on the ball, you know, is he a tricksy player? Is he whatever? He might not check all the boxes that you like think are the important boxes to be checking. But like you said, this guy works his butt off. He is often having important impact in key moments and being at the right place at the right time. And a lot of it has to do with like running his ass off to get there. Uh, how can you not like that stuff? And it's valuable stuff. Uh, it's super and valuable. It's more valuable considering the way that Jesse Marsh and Leeds are going to be playing. Want to play. Yeah. So he's like a perfect, he's a perfect piece of that system. And, you know, like we talked about this beforehand, in our last pod that like, what did Leeds do? Like bring in a whole bunch of Amer- of Americans or build a system. And I would argue that they built a system. The other thing I want to say about Brendan Aronson before we jump off topic is you have two, maybe three touches to do something with the ball when you receive it in the EPL. And in some cases you have one. And in some cases you're just getting a hospital ball, but it's two, maybe three touches. And I watched a lot of Leeds players struggle in the two to three touches they had. They would 
control it, maybe not as well as they could have. They would take a touch potentially in the wrong direction and not have as great of ball control as they would want, and a defender would pick it off. And there were periods of this game, namely at the beginning of the second half, where it felt like leads were a little bit pinned in their own third, actually. And mm-hmm. I noticed every time Brendan received the ball, or many times that he received the ball, he was very crisp in receiving it, and he wasn't always receiving the best balls. And he was very crisp in his first and second touch, to one to you know, pivot in one direction or the other, and the second to distribute it. And I was actually, you know, a lot of people like rip on it, uh, rip on Brendan, and they're like, oh, he's all hustle, he's all running, as if those things aren't like, as if like positional awareness and fitness aren't like perennial parts of the game. But he's like, he's got good ball control, like very good ball control, very disciplined. Uh, obviously, yeah. craft that he's developed for a long period of time, and so like people undermine that a lot. And I thought, I thought he did very well on that front. No, absolutely, I, I completely agree with this. I'm really, really excited to see what Leeds ends up doing. And you know what? They have a great chance to keep it rolling against Southampton. Uh, oh yeah, it is away on Saturday, but. If I'm picking, I, I think they I think they eke out another win here. Uh, they're they're on a roll. They seem really positive. Southampton is a team that just got absolutely pumped. We'll be talking a little bit about that actually next, Al. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, I mean, I guess you're with me here. They should get a positive result against Southampton. I expect it. Yeah, I totally expect it. I think they've got exactly what you said. They've got momentum rolling. Southampton's not that good of a team. I mean. Dude, they can really set themselves up well for the mm-hmm. rest of the season by pulling off another win here. Yeah, and and having a couple big moments and big games, good points early will do a lot for them to uh, you know, to move forward positively. I but, think that's uh, one thing that I we we need to stress for like the listeners at home. It's 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 like not all about the points. It's actually like less about the points in some ways than it is about the momentum and the mentality and setting the expectation in the locker room that you're going to win and having your players going into whatever game they play next feeling like they can do it. And Marsh is the type of manager that perpetuates that feeling. Yeah, absolutely, and it it's it's firing right now. Uh, but yeah, now we're going to jump into kind of our like uh. One takeaway we each have from the first week here, Al, um, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, like I, I'm going to say that Spurs are going to be very competitive and it's like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Um, the reason why I say that is um, one, it was like the that was like the big prediction I had at the beginning of the year. I was that like Spurs were going to finish at the top of the table, but they scored a ton of goals in this game. So they scored four goals. They went four to one and they didn't like Harry Kane didn't score. Richarlison wasn't on the team. Uh, uh, Basuma came in in like the 60th or 70th minute, and um, Ivan Perisic came on in like the 60th or 60th or 70th minute. So, like, here's a team that scores a shit ton of goals. Their best goal scorer isn't even on the isn't even um, in the box score, and they haven't introduced some of the like marquee talent that they brought in. Like this team is like very good and they're going to score a lot of, they're going to score a lot of goals and like a lot of games and they're going to build a lot of momentum. And like, they didn't even need to introduce their best new signings for them to blow out the competition. And Southampton's not very good, but like you can't undermine the points nor the momentum that's built. They're, they are a very good team. Um, I think it's a really good way to put it. It's an easy thing to say, just very good team, but they're super well coached. Their patterns, patterns of play are crisp. 
they're very, very okay with driving, getting runners driving forward. Harry Kane can play facilitator in that often, and he's so good at it. The guys, when he drops back toward the midfield, receives the ball, he, he's so hard to take the ball off of. But not only that, he's so good at turning in those positions and finding a runner. And when he's got guys streaking forward, that type, playing a defense against that type of thing is exceedingly difficult when you have the type of execution coming from those incredibly mm-hmm. talented players. You would imagine as they uh, work everybody else that you mentioned not getting played or only playing a bit into the squad, they're just going to become like more efficient with doing this type of thing and have less drop off when they are forced to make changes. So, yep. yeah, they will be very competitive this year. Um, great, you know, great start for them. And what do you have? What was your big takeaway from week one? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I really am enjoying this takeaway a little bit too much, probably. And it's a very obvious one, but United are bad. Uh, not like, like really bad. Um, the mentality seems super lacking. Uh, and then suddenly there's a ton of talk about all these like panic buys, essentially. And so much of the talk around Ten Hag initially was, oh, he's got a plan. We want to play like this. We need certain types of players to be able to do that. And, you know, some of this is like a perception I have of the fan base, but it's like everybody's just immediately ready to like rip the playbook up and go with, okay, we got to get guys in, you know? And I don't know why this seems to happen every single time, aside from that their upper management just allows it to be just a ridiculous shit show all the time there. And they don't have like a good plan and it trickles down to the rest of the, um, you know, the rest of the club, but like, Jesus, they just need to stick with their plan and be patient if they want to f- turn this ship around. Cause United are becoming a joke in a lot of ways. And it's just like, you you can't just like expect that when you sign like a, a few guys from the Dutch league or whatever and like um you know uh, and Danny Christian Eriksen on, on loan yeah like that suddenly things are going to be going to be better it's not the the switch is not going to flip the, instantaneously this team has like deep rooted issues that will take somebody like Tang Hag a couple of years to work through and, and develop a, a better mentality in the, the dressing room. You know, this is a really poor result for their first competitive game under him. He was and at home, the, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just like their mentality, the way they all drop heads when they first go down a goal. And it's just like, boom, we're back to last season where they're just getting absolutely pummeled. Five zero by Liverpool. You could see that type of fear in their eyes. That that like that, weak here we go again. Yeah, yeah, it's ugh, you. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to shame the fans too much with this, but like, really, you guys need to be patient about it. It's not just going to be like, oh, things are better right away. Like, this is a long term project. Yeah, I I, I if agree. You know, you get top four. It's nuts. No, I agree with your sentiment on the fans. Like, I, I don't like want to berate the fans with it. And like, you know, like I, I and I'm not all of them are the same way. And yeah, like I, I get it. But I noticed like a lot of like United fans were like, we got to buy new players. Like our players suck. And I'm like, dude, you want to look at a team whose players suck? Like come over to Everton, you know, like you don't you like you don't understand like 
the dudes that are coming off your bench would be like perennial starters for like most of the teams in the league. Like, what are you talking about? Your players suck. Like you have issues that are deep rooted exactly like you said. And it's a mentality thing. And like, you know, I know that like the data says that like the majority of goals are, are score are, um, are scored after a stoppage in time or after like another goal is scored. Right. So like, teams score goals after goals have been scored. It's very common that that happens. And that's exactly what happened in this game. The problem was, is like Brighton, like, I I guess you got to say like hats off to Graham Potter. Like he's way better. Yeah. Than, still way better than people give him credit for. But like Brighton got raided. Brighton had, lo- Brighton's lost all their, they, they've lost their two best players. I mean, have they lost more than their two best players? I mean, you know, they, they lost Basuma and what's his name? The uh, Sideshow Bob. <laughs> sideshow bob like the third or whatever yeah uh yeah um you know they lost some of their better players for sure but the, the they're able to sign good replacements and they're able to turn uh turn things over and and keep with the system and and the coach being there for a while and having like an established way of playing it really helps with that type of stuff and it's like back to for me the patience thing let ten Hag do his thing and whip this shit into shape yeah Yeah. and uh you know i I guess like the point that i was trying to express is like that deflated nature that you talked about that you see on the players like that was in this game for sure you know Mm -hmm. give up against a better team it would have been worse oh yeah uh in a way it would have been worse too you know like what are they what's next for united do we know who they have next you know what i oh brentford Dude, that's going to be a great game. It's, da- it's dangerous for sure. Oh yeah, because they they slip or they only. I mean, is it home or away? Uh, I can't remember. Okay. Um. Yeah they they slip in that game and um. Uh, they're gonna have they're gonna have a uh, yeah it's away. Um. <laughs> and, you know I know that we're not talking about Brentford, but I mean Brentford like did pretty good. I have a yeah. resilient resilient game from Brentford last week. You know, they're probably riding a little bit of a high and yeah, they lost Christian Eriksen, but like, you know, the analytics might be might be greater than losing Christian Eriksen. We'll see. That will be a, a very difficult game for United. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of week two, uh Ryan, what are you looking forward to in week two? So I'm, you know, gonna highlight the marquee matchup here. This Chelsea versus Spurs game coming down the pipeline. Um it is going to be just an awesome game in general and an early indicator of like where these teams are um, for the top four bids. Uh, You know, looking back at that Chelsea Everton game, once again, uh, is Chelsea going to sputter on offense? Looking at the Spurs game, once again, is Spurs going to score a bunch of goals? You know, Chelsea's kind of had Spurs number uh, in historically. Uh, So it's, it's going to be a really, really interesting game. We'll see how, you know, how much Conte's got them, got them firing. Uh, it, it should in general be a, a very, very fun game to watch. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this one. Yeah. I'm into that one too. Um, man, that's going to be a marquee matchup and that again, that's like going, uh, it's going to provide a lot of context. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think, uh, is going to be going on this next week? What are you looking at? I'm looking at Fulham Wolves. Um, I think it's just going to be like a really good test of where Fulham actually stands. Again, like Wolves is like generally like a, a stingy team defensively, but I totally expect Wolves to be able to break them down if they can break Liverpool down. And if Wolves comes out and makes, or if, uh, sorry, if Fulham, if Fulham 
comes out and makes a statement in this game and breaks down Wolves and scores some goals and walks away with three points. Now you've got a Fulham team in, you know, in two games that pulled four points off of what was previously the number two team in the league and the number 10 team in the league. And that like nobody could have dreamt up a better start to the season for Fulham. And then it's like, okay, well, what happens next? And like, what's going to go on with that club? And like, it shapes the relegation picture in a yeah. huge way. Like it, it puts wolves in it for certain and it takes Fulham out of it. You would think so. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the other side of the coin there is like, what's going on with wolves a little bit, given the, you know, Fulham ends up going and, and winning this game. Wolves struggled to score last year. I think they only scored like 38 goals all year. As we talked about um, previously in the, when we were talking about leads with them, they are really stingy defensively, but you know, that'll, that'll get you a lot of draws, get you a lot of uh, low scoring wins, but it also makes you vulnerable to a team that's going to like try to buzzsaw you. And um, given Wolves struggles against, Leeds, who were the team with the most pressing actions last week, I wonder how Fulham, the team with the second most pressing actions, is going to, you know, there's actually, this is a dangerous game for Wolves, and we didn't really shout them as a relegation candidate, uh, and I don't really think they are quite yet, but it's a slippery slope, and losing to Fulham is not where they want to be. So, yeah, this is a really interesting game. Um. So it'll be good to catch up and see what what happens um, after the dust settles in week two. Um, let's come back to the United States and, and um, talk about the men's national team for a second. There's a few topics that I thought would be worth discussing. Um, some of the things that I wanted to go over were like some ideas that I've noticed the fan base throwing around and then specifically zoom in on two players that have been that have a lot of upside, it would seem. So, Ryan, where should we start in when it comes to the men's national team? Uh, so, I think both of these topics of at least the um, the theoretical like player selection kind of side of it are this is all within the context of the September uh, window, right? And like um, the two things here are introducing new players and playing players out of position. Twitter is what it is. So making, uh, you know, sensational assertions gets you, uh, you know, gets you the likes, gets you the retweets, et cetera, get, generates conversation. You know, all that interaction is, is important for, uh, for a ton of different reasons, you know, whether it be uh, for your own vainglory or for simple, uh, you know, generating, you know, getting a lot of attention for monetary reasons. But um you know, the legitimacy of these points, I think, within the context of the the September window is, is a bit lacking, actually. I, I wonder if the purpose of the September window really should be to introduce new players or start playing players out of position. This is our last chance to get things in order for the World Cup. I'm pretty sure it's time where it's, uh, you know, let's get guys in a spot where they know that they can be successful and make sure we have a solid plan going into that first game against Wales. Uh, yeah. Al, I mean, what's your, what's your deal with these topics? Yeah. I, I, I agree with like what you said. They, they're like these kind of just like far out sensationalist takes. And like, you know, I'm going to speak very specifically about like one of them, like uh, Brandon Vasquez. Is that, is that his name for FC yeah. Cincinnati? Like, 
we've been down this road before. Like we know what kind of league the MLS is. We know that like success in MLS does not necessarily translate to success on the men's national team, nor does it translate to success in at higher levels. And um, yeah, like I get like when Ricardo Pepe was hot, he scored some goals for the men's national team against like some of the worst competition that was in the tournament. But then he went on a cold streak and was unable to score both for club or country again. And like, it just doesn't make sense to like experiment with something that isn't like the juice is not worth the squeeze. Like experimenting with Brandon Vasquez is far less valuable than getting P folk into the system and getting him cut like accustomed yeah. to the guys he's going to be playing with. And like, unless we don't want to play with the guy who's scoring the most goals, like it just, that idea doesn't make sense. And like winning teams don't try to do that. And so for me, I just don't like think that, that these sensationalist ideas are going anywhere. And if people actually think that's what's healthy for the team, I, I'm just not convinced they understand what uh, what like you have to do to be able to win, and it's not like you're going to magically like put this roster together of all these guys who are like hot in the moment and they've never played together, and it's just going to like work out. Especially considering what we know about Burhalter, which is he wants to play like a system. It's not like he's playing like a very flexible four four two, and is like okay, you know, most of us know how to play this, so we're going to put our best players out there and just like go figure it out, and we're going to be like very sound defensively, and we're going to use our creative abilities to score goals, like. He's got this very kind of complicated system where, like, there were no one's even sure what the nine is supposed to be. And on one side, you've got an inverted wing back with Serginho Dest. And on the other side, you've got a wing back in Anthony Robinson. And, like, you really want to introduce more variables to that. And if that isn't enough in the players, you really want to introduce playing guys out of position. Like, what do we think is going to happen there? Like, is Burhalter really mm-hmm. going to change from like a, a 4 3 3 to a 4 2 3 1 and all of a sudden we have a 10? Or do we just want to take a guy who's never played a forward and act like all the training that goes into receiving a ball, turning, like using your body? I mean, we saw it happen with Anthony Gordon in Everton, didn't we? Like, yeah. he was like a fish out of water. Like, what makes you think that? Brendan Aronson isn't going to be like that, or Giovanni coming fresh, Giovanni coming fresh off injury. You're you're throwing them to the wolves. It just yeah, makes and, no sense to me. And I and being like, well, uh, Brendan Aronson played there once in his last fifty games. Maybe is, is like not validating the point that he should be played out of position like that in a pinch. Yeah, if we're like throwing everything at the fucking wall because we're behind or something, you know, in these like outside corner cases, but using it as like a main plan asserting that it's like viable in that manner is just ridiculous. Like, and, and I, you know, have to think it just is about like getting people to interact with you more than anything else. So, yeah, I don't disagree. Um, let's, let's zoom in on two players. I mean, Malik Tillman, Jesus, that kid can, yeah, that was awesome. Um, I don't know how much, uh, you know, I, I don't want to take away from what Tillman did. Goalie maybe shouldn't have tried to go for that one. But yeah, uh, I'm, I mean, he had to, he had to rise up like a, like a salmon going up the Columbia river there. Uh, and he, uh, you know, he's a big kid and that's a big goal in an important game for them, putting him through to the next round um, of qualifying for the champions league. I absolutely love that kind of stuff, especially when a young guy does it and they get that taste and they're like, Holy cow, I can be this guy. You know, it's a really important, uh, 
moment in, in his development. And uh, I'm really excited for him. And I'm excited that, you know, if he can carry on uh, from that moment and have good performances, it looks like Rangers is going to give him plenty of opportunities that we have a really viable, uh, another really viable player for, for the toolkit. And uh, this kid, if it keeps on, he's going to Qatar. Um, hopefully it's somebody like Christian Roldan that's getting cut. That would be so amazing. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens. But all this kid can do is is keep doing that kind of stuff, and he might might get on that plane. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I fully expect that to to happen. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he's, he's spent very little time being uh, introduced into the setup, but, like, the pedigree of the talent and the performance that we're seeing on the pitch is just, like, undeniable. Um, yeah, absolutely. He's very talented. Yeah. Um, yeah. And hopefully he just doesn't tell Burhalter how to play defense or anything like that. (laughs) Um, the other player that we should get really excited about is like the, the, um, the long lost and forgotten player, Matthew Hoppe, who's like done nothing as far as I'm concerned, but fantastic things when he's on the field, any field. Yeah, I'm so this is weird. I I feel bad for the guy because he had such a like roller coaster of a last season like or not really getting to play at all and then like why did you make the move and it, it just sucked and now he's dying his hair like eminem he's freaking <laughs> going to Middlesbrough. i like hope because he's got that like that shit he's, like so he's yeah. got that attitude and now he's just doing the dumb haircut thing and i'm totally cool with it like <laughs> For me, it's it's almost like a, a sign that his head is in the right spot to be like, be a better player because like, hope it just needs to be himself. He needs to get into a situation where he gets a little bit of a sniff, and then he'll do audacious things. I know like he didn't score a ton for Schalke, but one of those was like a ridiculous left footed chip over the goalie in in that hat trick game. Um, He's got some really good talent and he's got that like, I'm better than you and I'm going to like rub it in and I'm going to like work to win kind of stuff. And I'm just excited. It doesn't, you know, maybe nothing will pan out for him here, but I don't know. I think the stars are aligning for Hope and he's, he's in for some big moments coming up with Middlesbrough. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to, he's going to hit the ground running with them. I'm thinking he's going to hit the ground running with him. And what uh, there's like no better team for him to be on right now. I mean, like I shouldn't say there's no better team. I really like the league that he's in and I really like uh, the country that he's, you know, right. I like, I like all components of it. Like the style Mm -hmm. of the league is one that caters to his like personality type in some ways, you know, where it's kind of like go out and be Eminem and the fans will fucking love you. Sorry. (laughs) Swear less, but like, it's true, you know? And like, he speaks the same language as everyone. Like that's yeah. huge. Well, and Zach and, Steffen's on the team as well. Yeah. I, it's a good situation for him. And mm-hmm. um, again, like I haven't seen like situations where Hop has been on the field and it's like, oh, what did he do? Even the one game that he played for Mallorca, like didn't he like play particularly well and get like punched in the head or something like that? And it like sh- he should have drawn a PK, but they didn't call it. I don't like, I remember. I remember watching the game. It was it was like one game at the beginning of the season because that's like basically all he played. And the general consensus coming out of the game, I think by most people who watched the game was like, yeah, like he definitely impacted the game. And I've seen that from him in every game that he's played. So 
Um, it just bums me out so much that he's flown under the radar. And it's that's especially annoys me that he's been dropped out of the national team setup because he was like one of the best players on the field when we were doing, I think it was like gold cup or nations league. I forget which one, but he's yeah, great. He's, he's a gamer man. And, um, you know, you got to perform to be included. And, I, you know, I can't really think of many better situations for him right now to have the opportunity to perform. So let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, Ryan, um, Let's give our closing remarks. What do we have going on this weekend? Yeah, so uh, Ford Madison home game versus Chattanooga on the thirteenth. Alex, it's going to be your first game. I'm, I, you know, I'm gushing about this left and right, but I'm, I'm very excited to to have you there. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. Uh, we got a whole group of us going uh, that we all had played soccer with one another in some capacities. So uh, that is going to be, you know, a, a good reunion because one of the guys is out in Connecticut and we don't see him that often anymore. So so that's going to be uh, that's going to be a blast. Um, I'm sure forward Madison, the players will hear us and, uh, you know, the ref and the opponent will as well. So, yeah, I mean, uh, anything in particular you're looking forward to with it? Yeah, I'm going to definitely be harassing Chattanooga. Um you know, when, I, when you're in Chattanooga, you can't really harass Chattanooga. It's kind of like a death wish. But when you're in Wisconsin, um, harassing Chattanooga is on the menu. And uh, I've got a, I've got a, I, I find it rather toothsome to harass the Red Wolves. So um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being like as belligerent as I can possibly be and then walking across the street back to my hotel. There you go. Short walk home. Hopefully it's a long ride home for Chattanooga. <laughs> Um, well, from us at Das Champions, go fuck yourself, Chattanooga. <laughs>